My guest today is Amit Puri. He was one of the founders of the Global Impact Investment Network, which is affectionately known of as the GIN, back in 2009. Today, he's the CEO, and he not only manages this key global institution, but he's also steered the global direction of the field of impact investment. This was a radical new concept a mere 10 years ago. The idea of investors measuring their social impact as closely as they measure their profits. But today, it's prolific. Growth is strong, and it's proven that it can not only survive a downturn, but also contribute to the rebuilding. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. From the first moment I began learning about impact investing, the gin was a key touch point. And in fact, my very first guest on this show was Abhilash Mudalier, who was the head of research at the gin at the time. So the bond is strong. Now, Mitt was generous with the insights about his background as much as he was about how he sees the future evolution of this concept of impact in all its forms. But enough from me. Let's dive in. You can find all the show notes on my website at johntreadgold.com. And if you have any feedback or comments, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm always keen to hear from my listeners. And someone else I'm always keen to hear from is Ria. That's the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. They're a great supporter of the show. They have over 300 members managing more than $9 trillion in assets globally. They're the largest network of people and organizations engaged in responsible, ethical and impact investing across Australia and New Zealand. You can check out responsibleinvestment.org to find out more. All right, on with the show. Let's get into my chat with Amit Buri. Here we go. Amit, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. Oh, thank you for that. Well, look, first of all, I forgot to ask, where are you? And how have you been handling COVID lockdown where you are? Uh, so I, I'm in New York, which is where I live and where I work. Um, and we stuck it out in the city. And so um, we're doing all right, all things considered, and have a lot to be grateful for in light of everything that's happening in this country and around the world. Um, but I will say, kind of in the spring, you know, here in the U.S., New York was in a pretty tough place. You know, things are you know, much more under control here, but um, you know, we, we can't risk being complacent. But one thing I'd, I'd, I would definitely say that the impact of the COVID crisis certainly underscores you know, the need for the work of the gin and all of our colleagues around the world who are trying to build a more resilient uh, and sustainable system. That's right. That's right. And of course, the GIN is the Global Impact Investment Network, you know, really keen to sort of dig into defining this amorphous term, which is what we always end up having to do. But, uh, you know, I think people appreciate it. But having you here and, and diving straight into that, you know, I think that I'd love to understand how impact investors have responded to, to the crisis. I know that R3 Coalition was a response there aiming to get capital to those in need. But we do know that, you know, private equity can be very sort of slow and, and you know, deal flow can take a long time. So I'd love to understand how, um, you know, if there are any methods that we, we've come up with to really get it to react really quickly. Sure, absolutely. And, and you, you remind me that I should introduce the organization. Um, so the GIN, <laughs> as I call it, is the Global Impact Investing Network, G-I-I-N. And we are, you know, a global champion of impact investing. We've been around for about 11 years now and support a global network that includes over 30,000 people all around the world and has over 300 formal members uh, on six continents uh, who are all a very diverse set of investors, but share this conviction that private capital can be used to have a positive social or environmental impact. Now, when the the COVID crisis hit, you know, I think it's important to kind of, you know, like unpack the different elements of the crisis because I think there are multiple crises at play. Uh, There's, of course, first and foremost, a public health crisis that has spurred an economic and financial crisis. And that has really exposed the vulnerabilities of our system and some fundamental inequities that existed before, but I think were um, brought under a spotlight in ways that um, many people had not seen them before. Uh, and then I, I think that there, you know, of course, is a, you know, in, in the U.S. and other parts of the world, it, it, it did kind of feed into a broader racial crisis around racial justice. 
Uh, and all this is in the landscape of what I believe is a crisis in trust and confidence, you know, trust in business and government and leaders to do the right thing. Uh, so it's an incredibly challenging time. For the GIN's work, um, you know, given our remit and our network, um, you know, we work very quickly to mobilize our network um, to play its role. Um, you know, in responding to, you know, the, to the crisis. And, and I do think that you know, government is front and center for this work for obvious reasons with the public health crisis, but there are very important places where impact investment can play a role. We very quickly worked with several of our partners, you know, foundations and fellow networks to organize and set up the, the R3 Investment Coalition. And the three R's are, are response, recovery, and resilience. And the idea was that there's the immediate response to the crisis. You know, how do we actually help fill gaps that are urgent? But also that we need to have an eye towards the broader recovery phase, where I think impact investing can play an incredibly important and much bigger role. And ultimately that we are, you know, trying to build a more resilient system, you know, on the other side, so that we're not trying to return to the normal that we left, if you will, but we're really trying to, you know, shape the next normal. Uh, hopefully a better system that incorporates everything that we've learned and experienced as a part of this crisis. And so the R3 coalition, it was, was mobilized very quickly. Um, I really am grateful for all the collaboration of networks all over the world who participated. Um, you know, everyone's operating under incredible amount of duress. Everyone is spread too thin. They're dealing with challenges at home in their communities and their organizations. Um, but it did underscore an incredible kind of orientation towards collaboration and cooperation to have an impact investing wide response to the crisis. Mm, and I think, I mean, recovery and resilience is obviously such vital concepts here and we've heard it more and more and while sort of on one level impact investing um might be you know just a concept of investing i think really the broader element of it that makes it so uh important is really has really come to the fore in a crisis and i think you know people have talked about responsible investing in esg as oh that that, that won't be able to survive a crisis but i think impact investing has led and shown that actually it the difference is what's made it so vital and so important. So I wonder, are there any sort of practical examples of how, you know, the allocation of capital and the deployment um, has been able to happen really fast, which is rare, to sort of make this change and drive that, that recovery? I talk about it in kind of, kind of two levels. One is impact investors uh, who are already kind of active in the market. And the other is the, the, um, the effect that this crisis will have on bringing more investors into impact investing. So for impact investors themselves, I think there was a, you know, a, a lot of activity to help shore up the companies that they were already invested in. You know, how do we make sure that these high impact businesses all around the world really can weather the storm and survive? And as we've seen, there's been, you know, incredible damage to the small business and, 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 and large business sectors of, you know, all around the world. Um, so, you know, impact investors were very focused first on kind of protecting their portfolios, um, but many of them were also looking at how they can use their capital to help fill uh, gaps. And we actually, through the R3 uh, coalition, set up a co-investment platform, uh, which was a way that um, investors could help share um, opportunities that they're investing in to help bring them to other investors very quickly. And the goal there was to shorten kind of the discovery process, if you will. Um, so to make sure the right deals could get in front of the right investors very quickly and that we can help accelerate connections you know, much faster than what would have happened normally. And that's why the collaboration across 12 different networks was so critical. The areas of interest in terms of where people were really focused for co-investment opportunities, of course, health, healthcare and health delivery systems, but also things like food and agriculture. A lot of concerns around food security um, for many populations. Uh, we saw interest in water, sanitation, and hygiene, and, and even some around education. I mean, of course, it's, the, the crisis is uneven around the world. Depending on where you are, you're in a very different state in terms of what COVID is doing to the local community. I think we're starting to get down the path of the broader recovery, and hopefully we're able to get the crisis uh, and the immediate response behind us and really focus on what we're building towards. That is where I think impact becomes front and center for the broader financial markets. I think if you're running a big pool of capital right now, uh, managing a big pension fund or insurance company, and you look at the world around you and see the vulnerability that this virus you know, was able to expose and what it's done to the, the social fabric in so many parts of the world, that it is really a call to invest differently. 
And this, of course, you know, is all against the backdrop of the climate crisis, which continues to rage on and do uh, incredible damage, you know, socially, environmentally, uh, and economically. So I think that the what impact investors have been developing, you know, this discipline of putting capital to work to have a positive, measurable impact is going to be relevant to a much broader set of investors who are starting to recognize that if they want a world that is truly sustainable, truly inclusive, truly just, that they have to change the way that they invest. Well, that's it. We've heard of this acceleration in so many other industries, you know, technology and everything, and, and impact investing is certainly driving that as well. And, you know, as I was thinking this through, I'm keen to understand this evolution and this trend towards growth that we've seen. It's obviously accelerated. But as you explain the role of the gin, I think one important part of that is sort of the holder of what I see as the core definition of this term. And I think it shows the stage we're at where sometimes we still have to define this term. I mean, I think a sign of success is that so many investors want to label their strategies as impact funds. But I wonder, has your definition of the term stayed the same over the past decade? It largely has, but I will say we have clarified it further, and I'll explain what I mean. The core of the definition was, was largely the same from the beginning. And just to be explicit about what that is, you know, we define impact investments as investments that are made to generate a positive, measurable social or environmental impact alongside a financial return. What we've needed to do over time is further expand that so people understood that it is across asset classes, across sectors. You know, it has to have a financial return because some people would uh, confuse this with philanthropy. And then one thing that we were looking at a couple of years ago um, was the market was really starting to take off. And there was this, in many ways, this was an incredibly positive thing because we always wanted impact investing to go mainstream. And we saw many, many larger institutions, you kind of mainstream commercial financial services players enter the impact investing market. And depending on who you asked in our community, you'd get one of very two uh, different answers. Uh, it's a bit of a caricature, but you know, some would consider this as like our ultimate arrival. You know, that impact investing is hitting the big time and that we've actually, you know, are, are where we want to be. Others, conversely, saw this as the beginning of the end, that this is the unraveling and dilution of impact investing. You kind of the big institutions, quote unquote, will come in and screw it all up. What I think is important and what, where the gin has been positioned on this is that we need the scale of capital. If we are truly going to move the needle on issues like climate change or poverty or any of the things that are captured in the UN's sustainable development goals, we have to move a lot more money and we have to move it soon. But we're not counting our success in terms of number of dollars. You know, ultimately, we're not trying to achieve capital at scale. We're trying to achieve impact at scale. And that's why a core part of our strategy at the gin is in also the integrity of impact. So it's that combination, scale with integrity, that is so critical. And so one thing we did launch last year was the core characteristics of impact investing. And this was really a response to help drive consistent quality in what people were defining as impact investing. There are four characteristics, they're all on our website, but it really was our um, attempt that, you know, working with you know, several hundred stakeholders in our community of outlining what good impact investing looks like. And we think that is both to mitigate the risk of impact washing or people kind of using the term but not actually backing it up with the action, but it's also about pursuing the upside. You know, how do we make sure that we kind of like maintain a high bar and draw in people who are attractive to high quality impact investing? Uh, and I think that, you know, momentum continues to build. Yeah, look, I think this is a really important issue. You know, I see these, I don't know, something like a, a huge green bond announcement and, and the, the headline figure is the number, right? The dollar amount. But nowhere in the press release does it talk about the expected impact you know they're not quantifying this impact which look sure sometimes the assets aren't confirmed but there's certainly going to be a mandate in the background so i think that still shows that you know that's secondary and, and obviously scaling with integrity is vital there and, and you know you, you talked about the danger of diluting impact when suddenly this rush of capital comes through what role do the public markets have in all of this do you think you can have impact in public markets yeah, it's a great question. This is something that has been debated since the, the origination of the, the term impact investing and it continues to this day. I think, um, you know, this conversation often gets bogged down in, you know, in, in along a couple of things. One is the size of the company 
And usually when people in the early days were talking about impact investments, they tend to talk about smaller companies, high focus on impact, you know, deep mission orientation. But of course, those companies will need to scale. Right. And, and so eventually they'll get big and they need more capital and, you know, some of them will go public and more of them will go public. And so then the question is really, you know, are we looking at the asset or the, the instrument that's most important? We do think that a lot of the focus on bigger companies that are listed, when we talk about like social and environmental factors, tends to be focused on the negative impacts. And how do we manage those down? You know, effectively, how do we reduce their harm on the environment, on communities? You know, how do we make sure we have baseline kind of expectations around how they treat workers and so on? Where impact investing is really critical is like, how do you drive up the positive impacts? And what we're seeing now is a convergence in that thinking. You know, um, more investors are starting to think about the holistic impacts of that. And I think that that can all fundamentally be applied to companies large and small. But of course, based on what the company is doing, that will depend on, you know, some of them are not, don't have as strong of a case on the positive impact. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't be thinking about their impact, right? Our vision is that impact becomes part of all investing and that it's just built into how we think about performance, value, fiduciary duty, risk, and so on. And so ultimately, I think that, um, you know, Companies that are public can have an impact. I think we have a lot of work to do to better define the positive impacts for listed companies. Um, and we actually at the GIN are currently running a working group focused on listed equities to help you know, bring better kind of like guidance to that very question. What does impact investing look like when we're thinking about listed equities? Um, and I think as we continue to get sharper on that, that'll open up a whole realm of engaging a much broader set of investors and companies in this conversation. Yeah, and I think there are, you know, a lot of leading companies who are working really hard to try and work out how to measure their impact. But then for those that might be laggards that we're invested in that we want to try and influence, um, I think to me that's really such a vital issue that a lot of my listeners are trying to grapple with. How can we influence these massive public companies? We only have a small shareholding. We have, you know, engagement and divestment. That's sort of the ESG mantra of ways to influence companies. But if we don't have a controlling share, we don't have anywhere near, you know, a controlling share. What other ways are there to influence these companies? You know, I'm not a specialist in engagement. We like, you know, like many other organizations that go deep on these issues, but we've seen a, a big uptick in kind of activism you know, among shareholders. And this has a long history. Of course, it dates back to the apartheid movement. And since then, it's been building and building. And of course, now we see a huge surge in activity around climate change. I think that what is really important is for you know, all stakeholders to really um, convey their expectations on companies. You know, customers, you need to send demand signals for, you know, kind of sustainable products and for companies that have good operations. And as investors, it's really critical to let companies know that you are, you know, you're looking at their impact on environmental and social issues. I think if you're a small shareholder, it is about strength in numbers. Um, and I know there are a number of organizations around the world that are helping to organize investors and campaigns around companies. But my hope is that we also um, are able to identify more and more kind of company leadership that is thinking about their sustainability, thinking about their impact, and is actually trying to figure out how to partner with investors. You know, I should mention that part of when, with the early days of impact investing, you know, back when the gin was getting founded, was part of the motivation for some of our supporters was actually kind of looking at the other side of the coin of around like kind of social enterprises. And there was this conversation about these enterprises are building, you know, growing and growing and building their models with a strong social or, or mission focus. And at a certain point, that would become intention with the expectations of their investors. So the question was, how do we actually get a group of investors who value companies for their mission? Not those who are trying to undermine it or dilute it, but who are saying, I'm picking this company and I'm backing these entrepreneurs and this management team because of their focus on you know, impact and, and their mission. And I think that's what we want to see also kind of, you know, it's, you know, one thing is kind of like, you know, using leverage to influence companies that are not, you know, focused on these issues. And also we need to figure out how do we back those companies and build up and make them successful when they are deeply focused on mission. That's right. And I think there is this coalescing of so many different groups coming together. And that obviously helps the, the power in numbers element of this is so important and companies are responding to me, that's part of the power of the imperative 
21 movement uh, that started to get on my radar and really interesting it's got a very similar uh, mission to what I hope you know good futures driving towards and it's brought lots of groups together can you tell us a little bit about imperative 21 yeah absolutely and for those of you who don't know it it's a relatively new group that is you know really a network it's bringing together a number of organizations and communities that are focused on you know improving the activities of business or in the gins case you know engaging with investors but the real fundamental focus is on driving economic systems change and it was you know originally organized uh, around this concept of stakeholder capitalism. The name Imperative 21 is about setting new imperatives for business for the 21st century. And there are three big imperatives, three big categories of, of focus for the, the, the network. One is designing for independence. And that is really recognizing that the, the interdependence of a healthy people, planet, and economies. And another is around investing for justice, you know, really trying to address some of the structural inequalities and ensuring that we have you know, the, the ways that we can build a more just economic system. Um, and last but not least is around accounting for stakeholders and how it's so critical that we not just understand um, the, the priority and importance of shareholders, but really start to think about businesses as responding to a full kind of like ecosystem of stakeholders. So shareholders, but also customers, employees, communities, and the planet. And overall, you know, what this group is really trying to do is build a network of people around the world who are all working on different elements that are building towards a broader systemic shift in our economic system. Mm, and I think, you know, the nature of, of having a platform of information, I think that's vital. And of course, you know, you're at the helm of a really powerful movement of capital. And that's, you know, a really pragmatic movement that's very practical. But I think when we look at something like climate change, and I've, I've heard it said very eloquently that the scientists have done everything they can, but now it's a mindset shift that we need. And that really resonated with me that since I was in university so long ago, this has been a clear issue. But we've got to this point now where those arguments, they, they don't work and they're not working. We need a mindset shift. I think Imperative 21 is leading there, but is there something that's missing? You know, I think we've got lots of these groups. I'm trying, you know, to push the message. Yourself is working really hard. Is there a gap that you can see that you think we need to push through that, that could really shift it there? Yeah, I think, you know, a couple things that I think are really important here. Um, and I think this is a really good kind of like, you know, line of questioning because it does really unpack you know, when we think about systemic change, how do we think about it like a real systemic uh, response to these crises? And, you know, the climate crisis is a perfect example. You know, there's no silver bullet or point solution that will actually unpack such, you know, something that is so embedded in the way our economy works. I think one thing about a reflection on the Jin's work in our early days was that we were very focused on like technical elements of building the impact investing community. Uh, so we work with investors, practitioners, and that's who you know, really comprise our network. We do a lot of work on measurement and data. Our research is very data-based. It's, you know, it's incredibly data-driven. And our, our role as being an objective arbiter of data and information is something that's very core to our DNA. But we also started to recognize um, a few years ago that data and technical solutions alone are not sufficient. You actually have to complement that with work on broader kind of cultural shift or shifting mindsets. Um, and that's part of why we um, were excited to partner with the Imperative 21 Network, um, because they, you know, some of their early efforts have been really focused on helping to shift the narrative. Uh, they recently launched this campaign called the Reset Capitalism Campaign. It was launched on the 50-year anniversary of um, a Milton Friedman's seminal publication in the New York Times, you know, an essay that really posited that the sole social responsibility of business was to increase shareholder profits. But the campaign is really broad-based. It's designed to help engage everyone, not just professional investors or business leaders. You know, if I take a step back, one thing that I, I think resonates with me about what you're saying is that, you know, we do need a variety of strategies all working in concert. There's a framework that I like that um, uh, you know, did not develop and can't claim any credit for, but I think it's really great work developed by an organization called the Anyi Institute that looks like at a movement ecology. What it really speaks to is that you need to have a whole ecology of different efforts working towards shifting a system. So you need people working the inside game. 
as I was referring to, you know, around helping to work with the leaders who are doing the good things and helping to build them up and make them more effective. You need people working the outside game. So putting pressure on bad actors and, and, you know, and that shareholder activism you talked about is one example of that. But no single solution alone is enough, but we actually need a much more kind of coherent ecology uh, to help drive the movement. And I think that is fundamental to the thinking you know, for your work with Good Future and to your community of listeners um, is to be explicit about what role are you playing, but also how do you collaborate with people playing the other roles? Because ultimately it's kind of working across the silos that are absolutely critical uh, to shifting a system. And just to shift gears a little bit, uh, I'd love to understand your sort of journey to all of this. I mean, you founded the Gin in in 2009. What were you doing before that? And what was it that, that drove you to the gym? Well, I'd started my career uh, in, in corporate consulting. So I worked as a strategy consultant for a firm called Bain & Company and had a tremendous few years there, learned a lot, made incredible relationships, but started to realize that I wanted to have purpose front and center for my um, career. And so then I went to a nonprofit uh, working in global health, uh, specifically on preventing mother-to-child transmission of HIV. Uh, and I, I was um, incredibly motivated by the mission, uh, and it worked in helping to mobilize resources for the organization. And um, it was a fairly successful organization, but I you know, really started to recognize that you know, to move the needle on an issue like HIV, you really had to think about shifting the entire system. It was as much progress as we were making and as much as we were growing, at times it felt like a drop in the bucket. And so I started to think about how, you know, the role of different sectors play in addressing a, a problem, like a social or an environmental problem. I went to grad school, uh, worked in two corporate philanthropies while I was in grad school, but, you know, was focused on a business degree and a policy degree, really trying to get that intersection of different sectors. Then I went back into consulting, but was, it was actually kind of a dream form of consulting for the Monitor Institute because it was strategy consulting, you know, amazing people um, with social sector clients. So leading nonprofits, social enterprises, foundations. Um, and that was where I got connected, you know, to a project for the Rockefeller Foundation that was looking at how to mobilize more investment capital to address social and environmental problems. Eventually, what became impact investing, but the term wasn't around then. And so we did a project that was really looking at the, the global market for this. And it wasn't really a market or an industry. It was some really interesting innovators you know, scattered around the world. The role of this project was um, to figure out how to scale it. And the fundamental conclusion was we need to look at this in terms of building an industry, not building specific investments or specific firms, but how do we create an entire marketplace? We developed a great strategy, which we published. We gathered a group of investors together, about 40 of them from around the world um, in Italy, where Rockefeller has an amazing facility. And that group liked the research, but also wanted to get to work on helping to build the market. So it was incredibly inspiring. But then we, we stepped back and said, we don't have a way of engaging a group. You know, we, it was the formation of a network. Uh, so Rockefeller actually seeded what, what is the, um, you know, now the gin uh, with a seed grant and helped the organization get off the ground. Now, for me, I had never done anything entrepreneurial. Uh, I never really like pursued that in large part because of how I grew up. Uh, I was raised by a single mom um, you know, from the age of three. Uh, we spent the first six years um, you know, of, of her raising us alone on welfare uh, or public assistance in the U.S. Um, while she was getting her feet under her and getting, um, and she eventually worked her way into the middle class. But for you know, a formative years, I was, you know, we were low income uh, and I've been able to access incredible educational opportunities. You know, I want to create those types of opportunities for everyone else. But all, another byproduct of that upbringing was that it was very risk averse. You know, we really didn't have anything to lose. Like we, we were very, scarcity was a mindset that was very prevalent for me. So I never entertained doing things that were risky or entrepreneurial. Um, so when it came to starting the gin, no one used the term impact investing then. We did have seed funding, but we had no programs or activities or members when I took the job. Um, and so um, it was both a journey in helping to build an organization, helping to build a market. Uh, and for me personally, it was actually helping me understand myself better because I actually love the entrepreneurial nature of building the organization, of building the network. And I love that we work with a community of people who are very entrepreneurial. Even the ones working at big investment firms are trying to innovate and develop new ways of, of investing in you know, big bureaucracies. So it's been an incredible journey for me and I'm filled with gratitude um, for the, the amazing network of people I get to work with every day. Yeah, I'm so interested about this concept of risk aversion. 
I mean, risk itself is a pretty abstract concept that finance still battles to measure. Have you felt that personally you've you've shifted that view? Have you sort of overcome it or is it still core to you? You know, I think it's it's evolving. I appreciate the question because, you know, I don't think it's like disappeared, um, but I think my comfort and my understanding of my own kind of risk appetite has shifted because, you know, when you grow up in an environment of scarcity and, you know, my, my parents were immigrants, we grew up low income for a big part of my, my childhood. Um, I was raised by a single mom you know, who was working you know, in a foreign country, raising two kids by herself. And so that does you know, sharpen the focus on making sure you can make ends meet. And there wasn't a lot of like, you know, kind of slack you know, for us to kind of experiment with things or have a, a sense that there was any kind of much room to maneuver. Uh, so that's definitely part of my DNA. It's part of who I am, and uh, and there's a lot of great things that came you know, from that upbringing. You know, it really helps um, ground me in the human experience, and I know what it's like to experience mobility, and I also know what it's like, you know, to be on the lower end of the socioeconomic um, structure in a country. But I think what I've you know learned also is just like how much you know, opportunities out there. You know, I've, I've grown increasingly comfortable and confident in my ability to play a role at really pushing the frontier of what the organization does and what the market does. But I'm always working at it, you know, and I'm always learning and I'm always, you know, kind of, you know, trying to reflect and figure out how I can personally evolve um, as a professional, as a person, as part of this journey. Yeah, look, it must offer you, you know, so much sort of empathy for, for the beneficiaries you're trying to work with and, and you know, this concept of risk is an interesting one and i you know when we think of it in the traditional financial terms risk versus return i often try to think through and ask this question of does risk operate the same way in impact investments because obviously we've sort of got beneficiaries that might be more vulnerable we want to make a positive return but then does that come at the cost of our beneficiaries but this is you know really at the core of it that it should be a win-win so how do you think risk fits in in the whole space you know I, I think you know impact investing is actually like you know part of the work that we need to do as a community is actually expand our sense of risk and our, our understanding of it you know and I, I like the way you, you put it because I think you know we typically think about financial risk right so what is you know what are all these different things can pose risk to me making money or, or the company making money uh, or the portfolio performing you know, whatever the lens is but there's also like the, the impact risk and who bears that risk. So if a company doesn't work out that is trying to serve low-income populations, there's a whole bunch of people who are depending on that service or those goods that will be affected. It was actually interesting. One of um, someone who was a, a very kind of experienced conventional venture capitalist who became an impact investor once described it to me this way. You know, he said he, you know, by all measures, he's a very successful um, venture capitalist. You know, doing conventional kind of non-impact agnostic investing. You know, he said they they built great companies, they got great returns, their investors were happy. You know, their firm was happy. You know, everyone kind of you know, made a lot of money. But he said, you know, he's like ten years later, none of those companies exist. And he said, as an impact investor, he wants all of his companies to exist. You know, his success isn't about his three or five or 10 year window as an investor in that company, but rather it's like, hey, he's playing a role in building something that he hopes exists you know, long into the future. And it's a very different mindset. And it means that if you're you know, operating with that long view, you think about risk very differently. One of the things that we often think about is, you know, as impact investing as a niche goes you know, more and more mainstream, what is the, you know, the thinking and the disciplines developed in the impact investing community that actually would be beneficial to infuse into finance more broadly? And this idea of you know, building companies for the long view at a time where all these market forces and cultural dynamics push us to you know, the very short horizon can be seconds if it's flash trading it can be days you know it's, it's you know kind of you know watching the stock price over the course of the day when a company should be about long-term purpose and long-term value creation and i think that's one of those you know, kind of uh misalignments that we need to, to to adjust yeah imbuing long-term thinking is really vital uh and we often have this concept that the success of impact investing will be when there is no impact investing when all companies are measuring their impact both positive and negative now i sort of say that a little bit glibly but i i, I sort of wonder is that sort of the gin view do you guys agree with that 
Yeah, it, it is. And, and I'll expand on it a little bit because we, we had a bit of a pivot a, a couple of years ago. Um, so we were coming up on our 10-year anniversary. And I mentioned that work I did as the Mon- at the Modern Institute you know, as part of that great team that was really looking at kind of the, what we call the blueprint for catalyzing a market. Um, and that was this document that served as kind of like the source code for the gin and a lot of our, you know, that early market building work. So we wanted to take a fresh look at that because the market had changed dramatically as we're coming up on our 10 year anniversary. And one of the things we recognized is that by all kind of like typical measures of a market, impact investing was a smashing success. We had more capital, more investors, more diversity across a number of dimensions, types of institutions, types of people, you know, geographic representation, engagement of the media, engagement with government, like all these things were moving in the positive direction and some, you know, as much as we could have dreamed. But if you zoomed out and look at the big picture and looked at an issue like inequality uh, or like the climate crisis, it was incredibly hard to feel successful. And we asked ourselves and we asked our community, like, what does success mean in a failing system? Um, And that kind of question and that reflection, like, really prompted a shift in our thinking. Because the early days of the gin were very focused on moving more investment to high-impact projects. Uh, And the shift in us, and and emphasis, I should say, was now that we had built a lot of track record experience in the global community around the impact investing there's the other meaning of impact investing, which is how do we have an impact on investing itself? And that led us to pub- publishing what we call our roadmap for the future financial markets. Out of recognition that in building impact investing, it, the end game is not just a bigger impact investing niche, but the end game is rather a world where impact becomes part of all investing. You know, where investors are weighing impact alongside risk, return, and time horizon when they think about their investment decisions where we think about terms like value or success incorporates impact into it, or fiduciary duty has those elements into it. So that is the end game that we're working towards at the gin. It's lofty, um, especially right now when times feel very dark. But I also think the, you know, the urgency and the opportunity for systems change is greater now as a result of all the things we're, we're dealing with as a result of these crises and what is exposing about the fragility and and the shortcomings of the system we've been operating under. Yeah, I think it's great to to dig into that sort of philosophical goal. I think that that really helps to shape it and to also make it really tangible for people. You you talked about your history over the last decade of building up this organization. Were there any any sort of deals, any companies or, or impact strategies early on that were successful, that were really, you know, a foundation that really made it click for you that said, yeah, this is, this is what it's all about, that people, I don't know, just something that people could sort of grab onto a little bit more? Yeah, um, definitely. I think there, you know, prior to the you know, term impact investing really being coined and, and being adopted, you know, it's important to recognize that there were people doing what we now call impact investing long before. And there were a number of things that I thought were quite interesting all around the world. So in the United States, there's a lot of work around community development, investing in affordable housing and trying to help develop lower income communities. You know, there are firms that were focused on things like organic farming and sustainable agriculture um, all over the world. You know, people investing in climate solutions um, and microfinance was a big area that, you know, as that went on a transition over several decades from something that was grant funded to something that was actually investable by commercial institutions, that really illustrated the arc. And so for those of your, your listeners who aren't familiar with it, microfinance you know, originally was around microcredit which is how do you make um, you know, entrepreneurs who need small amounts of capital, you know, oftentimes in emerging markets, can't access capital. So they can't get a loan to build a business. So what that does is it starves off economic growth. So all these banks and, and, and nonprofits you know, were developed to help serve you know, micro loans effectively. And that really started to get a lot of momentum in places like India and Mexico and, and elsewhere and really built up into you know, kind of a, a sector that started to engage commercial capital. And it didn't do that without its issues along the way, I should note, but it, it did really start to illustrate this you know, almost an evolutionary path of things that seem kind of like a bit fringe now and maybe not even like you know, financially viable. You can develop business models, really help to hone them, um, and end up scaling them pretty significantly. And that has tremendous potential. And you can see it being applied all over the world. People who are working on off-grid solar, 
which I really find to be fascinating, this issue of clean energy access. So people living in rural areas who can get things like household solar kits that allow them to have energy for cooking, for lighting, for reading, uh, for learning, and also in a way that is safe, good for the environment and good for their physical health. You know, really the nexus of climate and social impact. That is an opportunity that is, you know, really kind of a relatively new model um, that you could see, you know, going global in many ways. And, and we have all these entrepreneurs all over the world building new ways of um, addressing social and environmental problems. And I think that's what's so powerful and so motivating to so many impact investors is to be part of that transformation. Um, you know, of the way that the role that business has is instead of being something that is extractive, you know, depleting natural resources, depleting human resources, but one that is actually regenerative and restorative, and actually enhancing the human experience and, and reinforcing a healthy planet and sustaining it. And I think, you know, our work fits into that bigger transition that I think is so essential and so important. Mm, that's right. I mean, we have technological innovation, but I think that business model innovation is just as important and the impact potential is huge. And of course, within all of this, there are the technical issues and an impact measurement is one of them. We can get mired down in these, these issues, but you know, the gin really is central to that and, and they've built frameworks. So where do you think we're at with that and, and what's gin doing? Yeah, I, I think you know over the the course of the last eleven years that the gin's been around, there's been a, a you know a lot of evolution in the space of impact measurement. Um, you know, we um, had that as part of our core strategy when we were founded, and part out of a recognition that we we felt it was critical to build the common measures and metrics that would allow people to speak the same language when it came to impact, just like we have for financial terms and and, and metrics, that would allow us to build a much more cohesive market. You know, so again, through that lens of market building. Uh, so we launched with a program called Iris Plus. It was a catalog of metrics, and we'd run them through a stakeholder-driven process to really develop the you know, metrics sector by sector and those that are operational and cross-cutting. So agriculture metrics, housing metrics, and so on. Um, and then things like employment or gender that can be applied across a variety of, of companies. What we started to learn, though, was that we needed to you know, make those more accessible to investors. People wanted them connected to the SDGs, and they also wanted to understand which metrics mattered most. Uh, and so we, we went through a process starting a couple of years ago that led to the launch of Iris Plus, uh, which is a, you know, a comprehensive system for measuring and managing impact. So you can start with an objective like gender equality, you know, SDG 5 identify the investment strategies, and then the core metric sets backed up by evidence that you can use to measure performance. Now, as we were on this journey, there were a lot of other systems, you know, um, you know, standard setters, principles, frameworks, and other things that were developed. So there's been a proliferation of things, and it can be overwhelming you know, for investors who are new to the space, and it can be a lot of work for people who know their way around the impact investing community and are kind of veterans of, of this community. And I think now we're at a point where there's going to be a greater drive towards convergence, and, and we're certainly you know, doing, trying to do our part in that. Iris Plus, you know, is, of course, as I mentioned, it's integrated with the SDGs, but we've worked with over 50 different standard setters. Some are huge, like the International Labor Organization or the OECD or others, um, and, and some are very targeted, you know, looking at smallholder agricultural finance or other very specific kind of sectors and interventions. And that's what we're, we're trying to drive a greater convergence around this, and I think that will be important. Because what we want people focused on is not choosing the right metrics. That's important, but we want them to spend their time on trying to have the greatest impact possible, like trying to drive the best performance on those metrics <laughs> that matter. And, um, and that's a big emphasis for the gin right now is, is work on, um, on helping to drive you know, impact performance-based investment management. And so once people are tracking the same metrics, then we can start doing analysis and start understanding what are benchmarks, how do we compare performance across portfolios or across companies that can unlock a lot of insights and intelligence about what are the business models that drive the greatest performance across any number of metrics. And so we're working on that as a top priority right now as part of our you know, evolving role in market development. But I think that will be really critical to the evolution of the market is trying to open up impact as a dimension of performance. You know, the way we think about what it means to be a successful investor. And, and I think we're in the midst of that transition right now. 
Yeah, that's right. Because I think that that comparability across a portfolio is so vital. For a mainstream investor, they have a portfolio of companies and they just have a percentage growth rate of returns, right? Very simple to compare it. But when you have different companies that are having different impacts um, across different metrics, whether it be greenhouse gas emissions abated or children sent to school and educated, do you think that they're is a path to having impact comparability in the same way that we do financially? Or should we think about that differently? Well, I, I think at a conceptual level, um, there's definitely a path towards it. And, and we're working on that as a priority at the gin. But I think, you know, one thing to op- also open up when we think about like, you know, just the conventional markets is that there are all kinds of like sector specific metrics and KPIs or key performance indicators that people use. You know, so if you're looking at retail, you'll think about things like same store sales growth um, or sales per square foot or other kind of ratios and things that help you understand different dimensions of performance. Um, you know, people, you know, working in technology or media companies will look at subscribers, repeat customers, you know, people who are, you know, cross-selling services and, and other types of elements that will help them understand the health um, of, of, of a company's model. And so what we want to build are those same types of things in, um, in impact investing. And when we think about impact, you know, so for um, things like clean energy access, which I referred to earlier, what are the metrics that we think um, are interesting to compare across portfolios? We actually launched two pilot studies and that was looking at clean energy access and housing, which as far as we know, are the first ever cross portfolio analyses of impact performance. So we used iris you know indicators and looked and got a number of investors to share their data with us so we could analyze it and part of what the work we've been doing is actually developing the methodology to compare the data uh, which is more complicated than, than we thought it would be but it, it's important work and, and we're, we're um, still working on it um, at the time of this recording we're about to publish um, two um, additional studies that are much bigger in scope and breadth that they're focused on agriculture and financial inclusion but we see this work as kind of building a body of, um, of capability for the entire market. And so as we are piloting these studies and developing the methodology and, and engaging stakeholders in it, our hope is that we can do two things. You know, coming back to some of the points you raised earlier, one is to build the technical capability around how we compare impact performance, but the other is to do that in a way that drives a cultural shift. Right, and how we think about success and how we think about what a good company or a good investment looks like. Right, because if we do that successfully, that should not just include financial performance, but it should also include impact performance. Uh, and it shouldn't just include negative impacts or just positive impacts, but have a more holistic view at what a company does for its variety of stakeholders, shareholders, customers, employees, communities, and the planet. And that ultimately is where I see impact performance um, and impact measurement contributing to that bigger systems change conversation we're talking about. And, and the work that we're doing in the work of this you know, network comparative 21 is that you know, this is really feeding into a broader way that we need to drive a, you know, a systemic shift in the way our economy works. Oh, that's great. I think, I think that's such a tough concept to communicate and I think you've done it really well. And obviously, look, you're a great communicator. You've been doing it for a long time, but you're also a podcaster now. The Gin has its podcast, The Next Normal, a great name that I think people are really engaged with. How are you finding the process? I really enjoy it. And I, I mean, I, I love engaging with folks just like I'm enjoying this conversation with you. And I'm really grateful to have this opportunity. What, the reason why we started the podcast is part because we were focused on systems change and we're connecting to all these amazing people um, who are helping us you know, think about, you know, this is part of a project we were running called the, the New Capitalism Project, uh, which is really around trying to figure out kind of what are the visions for the future of capitalism. Now, one of the things that I found is that there are increasing critiques of the system that we have today. And it's not just hippies and activists and others who are doing this now. Now we have like billionaires from technology, titans of finance, you know, captains of industry who are all saying like capitalism is broken. We need to change the system. Um, you know, these are people who have, you know, in some cases have been enriched by the current system that we have, but who are calling for change. So we have all these voices critiquing the system we have now. But, you know, while I think that is really important, I also think people get motivated by a vision for what the new system will look like. 
I think that, you know, having that eye towards what that next normal would be was really what motivated the podcast was to get some really smart folks together to start saying like, kind of, what do you see? You know, we can talk about the critique of the system today. You know, what's wrong with capitalism as you see it, but what do you think we're working towards? Like, what does it look like? Like, you know, where do people work in a system that's better? Like, what is a company like? What is an investment portfolio like? What does society look like? And all these great folks, like very few of them have all the answers and that's not the point, but it's really the goal is to bring all these great minds together to create a space to help populate that vision. Um, and there's alignment in some places, there's tensions in others, but I think that is, uh, to me, an incredibly motivating conversation because it helps me keep my uh, sights set on, on the horizon and what we're working towards. And hopefully it does for um, you know, all the listeners who've had a chance to, to listen to the podcast. Podcasting really is such a great medium for that. Having the long form discussion, it, it's so in such contrast to the sound bites of of news on TV and Twitter and all of these elements. And it's great to see that it really goes against uh, this stereotype that people don't have, that have people have very short attention spans at the moment. And I think, I mean, we've spoken for almost an hour now and hopefully people are engaged and finding value in it. Uh, but really, yeah, really great to see that that's kind of pushing against sort of a negative stereotype, I think, of, of people losing that focus. But yeah, look, I do need to let you go because uh, we are pushing the time limits. But before I do, uh, do you have a book recommendation for us? People find this really valuable to, yeah, something that, that maybe impacted your career and the whole field early on or, or even just something really interesting that's on your side table at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many great books out there, but one I'd recommend, which we um, very different, I think, than you know, most of what I, I read in my day job, but is important for it, is actually a, a book by Thich Nhat Hanh called No Mud, No Lotus, um, which is just talking about, you know, he's you know, Buddhist and is you know, very much talking about like, you know, he's become quite a um, popular amongst like mindfulness circles. But really kind of um, what I like about it is it explores like, you know, kind of how we need to have a more holistic view of things, that you need to have the mud to grow the lotus, if you will, and that how we need to you know, think about the interdependence of systems. Um, and the interdependence of people um, and the fundamental connections. And I, I've you know looked at that book many times over the years. Um, I think it's so important now, you know, with all the crises that we're experiencing, because some of these crises are a result of our interconnectedness and our interdependence. You know, things like you know coronavirus and others have spread, and financial crises are not isolated to a specific place anymore. They they you know they have ripples. But I also think by leaning into our interdependence. Um, and our interconnectedness, that that's how we will you know, get out of crises and how we'll build a more resilient system. Uh, and that's very much why I work at it, you know, and, and helping to support a network of, of amazing people and institutions around the world. And so for folks who um, are inclined to read things like that, um, I highly recommend it. And at a time like this, I think it's just a great bit of perspective to think about kind of the long view, which I think is always important to pull us out of the day to day. No mud, no losses. I like it. It's a great concept. Yeah, I'll put that one in the show notes for people to follow along on the website. Amit, I, I really appreciate your time and the insights today. Obviously, ever since I started um, exploring the world of impact investing, the gin was key to that. Really are, to me, you know, that's where I send everybody when they when they ask me, what is this thing called impact investing? I send them there. So, so hopefully you guys will continue that and keep evolving and growing the space and, and glad to make the connection because that uh, really is a shared mission between Good Future and the gin. So thank you. And thank you for this opportunity. And for all those listeners, I, I hope this was a good conversation and, and please recognize your role in this bigger systems change and that you know everyone who's listening to this podcast has a role to play in helping uh, to build a better future, a good future, if you will. So thank you very much. 